is right. We are in week four now of this series called Promises, and I hope that you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks hearing from different speakers. Perry from Milford a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 112, and, and our very own Matt Minard speaking last week out of 1 Timothy. Just some great chance to hear some promises that are near and dear to people's hearts as, uh, as we approach God, as we approach this series. And we just sung a whole lot about God's faithfulness, right? Uh, we sung a lot about his faithfulness, who he is, and the fact that he's never going to let us down, that he comes through for us, that he uh, is faithful to what he says. And that's really the basis of this entire series, because we've been using as sort of our home base passage for the, that's going to go through that, the whole series uh, is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where, where Peter says, his divine, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, by his own glory and goodness. Through these, his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, the promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And we talked about this passage to kick off the series, but it's a great place to keep landing back as we think about God's promises and what makes them valid, what makes them true, is who the promise maker is. It's the character of God. And really one of the big things that defines God throughout the Old Testament is God's faithfulness. When he reveals himself to Moses and he, he shows him, Moses says, God, show me your glory. He, he has Moses in, in like a cleft in the rock on a mountain and he covers him with his hand because he tells him like, you can see me pass by, but if you see me face to face, you won't be able to withstand that. And so he passes by and as he passes by, he says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and faithful, right? He is faithful to his people for many generations. That's what he says as he passes by with Moses, that he is a faithful God. It's one of the core character traits of who God is. And as we continue in this promise series, this week we're going to be looking at how God is faithful to us when we give sacrificially to him. And we're talking about giving of our resources. Here's what we're going to be looking at in Malachi chapter 3, the last book of the Old Testament uh, against popular demand or popular opinion. It's not pronounced Malachi. Uh, it's Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So Malachi, he kind of structures his, his book like an exchange. It's God... He's basically um, predicting what the, how the people are going to respond and, and gives this conversation, essentially. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, that's what we talked about in week one, right? The immutability of God, the fact that he is unchanging. It's one of the primary reasons we can trust his promises. Great is your faithfulness to me because you never change. You're unchanging. You're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God is unchanging. And because he is unchanging, we can trust him to follow through on everything that he says to us and everything that he says about himself. It's going to be true in the future. We, we change our opinions. We waver. We, we have good intentions, but we fail to follow through. That's not God. He follows through and he is unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So he says, basically, I'm unchanging, and for that reason, my promises to you are continuing to come true. Because it's not on you. You, you the sons of Jacob, that's why you're, you have been turning away from my decrees and not keeping them from the very beginning. 
He's looking back. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see this picture of a faithful God and an unfaithful people. And the further from God they wander, the worse things get for them. And he calls them back and they turn to him and they'll receive the blessings that come with walking with the Lord, but then they'll turn away again. And before you know it, they're down all these other roads and they're leading to to things that are just not good for them. And God brings his, his punishment again, his correction and he draws them back to himself. But all through, all through all of these act- actions, all these things that the people are doing, he never turns his back on them. He continues to be faithful to them. Amen. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and not kept them. God doesn't change, but people do. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask... How are we to return? Now, when we read this, especially in this portion, it becomes pretty clear, especially in the next question and answer, that the idea, the people are like, oh, how did, how did we do that? You know, how, how are we to return to you? We haven't never left. How are we to return to you? But God is calling to them this idea of repentance. This idea of return is like a 180 degree turn, like a repentance. When we repent from something, we're turning away from that thing and back to God. He's calling them in to repentance. So how do, how do we return to you? They didn't think they'd gone anywhere. And I think this is really what's going on today in large sections of the church. I'm not talking about this church in particular, but I'm talking about the church, especially in, in the United States. I think there are large sections of people who are going, what do I have to repent for? What do I have to repent for? Everyone else out there, they need to repent. And we're not seeing our own blemishes. We're not seeing the way that we're going wrong. We're not seeing how we're approaching people in unloving ways. We're not seeing how we're misrepresenting the person and the character of Christ to our world. We're missing that. We're missing that. I just saw, um, my wife showed me a meme just the other day, or like a little description. It wasn't really a meme, but it was a picture with words on it. And it essentially said, all, the, all these evangelical Christians telling us that if we turn, change our mind, we'll get to spend eternity in heaven with them. That's not such a great draw to be with them. And it's like, man, we are earning for ourselves in times a really bad reputation. And that, that, while that's kind of a funny thing, at the same time, it's real, right? That's what people are thinking. And because we're not representing Christ, because we're saying we have nothing to repent of, everyone else needs to repent, but not me, we're, we're starting to ha- gain a reputation and push people away from the kingdom of God by our actions. We represent, we are ambassadors of, uh, of our home nation, which is in heaven. That's our kingdom. That's the kingdom we represent. And when we misrepresent it, people don't want anything to do with our homeland. And so they, they you know, begin to fill in the gaps themselves. And that's not, that's not a good thing. So I think that's where we are. Like how, we're supposed to return? How are we supposed to return to you? We never went anywhere. Verse 8, he says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe, or or the whole tenth, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Test me in this. This is the only place I know in Scripture where God says to test me in something. Test me in this. Any other time where God says that you're testing me, usually it's interpreted as a negative thing. We're told not to test God, but God says, you know what? I'll stoop on this one. You want to test me? Test me in this. And it says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not be room enough to store it. 
The ESV says something like that there will, there will be no more need. And the Hebrew's a little tricky in, in this part. Basically, it, it's sort of like an, an emphatic, and it's, and it's really doubling down. Like it's, it's going to get rid of any kind of need. It's going to be so much, we don't know what to do with it. When we give to him, he says, I'm going to open up uh, the, the, the floodgates of blessings so you won't even be able to store. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not drop bef- their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then, then, and here's the ultimate goal, the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is a pretty big promise, right? This is a pretty big promise. He says, when you are faithful to me with your resources, you're going to see my faithfulness in providing for you, continuing to provide for you in all things. It's a big promise. Now, we do have to be careful here about what God says to different groups and how we apply those things, right? Because we could go to this passage, and there's been a lot of people over the course of time, uh, and Perry talked a lot about this a couple of weeks ago, and we've mentioned it in the last couple of months as well, where there's this idea out there of the prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and prosperity. If we just do our part, God will make things smooth, right? Things will go perfect, perfectly for us. There, there won't be any issues in our family. We won't have any sickness. We won't have any financial troubles. Everything will go well. We will have health. We will have wealth. We will have prosperity. Our cars won't break down. In fact, we'll win, we'll win new cars and uh, random lottery drawings because that's just what God does when we're faithful to him. That's not, what he's, that's not what this passage is trying to say. And we have to be careful, again, when God is giving specific promises to the specific nation of Israel, how do we apply them to ourselves as individuals or our church or the United States of America? I think a lot of times we confuse America for Israel um, and we think that, that we are all suddenly God's people. God has people all over this planet, Right? There, there, God has people all over this planet, the continents of Africa and China, the gospel of India, the, the, the gospel is growing in these nations and, and continents like wildfire. And so really it's, it's predicted that, I mean, it's going to be a minority of Christians who live in the United States. And really already is true. And, and so at the end of the day, it's not a promise to America, right? But there's something about this promise that gets carried over into the New Testament. So it's not just for Israel. This principle rings true. When God says, hey, bring to me, bring to me these things and be faithful to giving to me and I will be faithful and watching over you. He means it and he means it for us as well. Now, again, this is a pretty big promise, but the other thing about this is, you know, people um, honestly don't like to hear about money at church a lot of times and I get it. I understand because there's been times where money has been abused in the church. And so why are we talking about this? Like why, why talk about this when there's a stigma around discussing money at church? Uh, there's, there's a reason, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip to another passage. There's a reason that this is vital for us to understand and to know. And, and it's not something that we want to talk about all the time here at Oak Point Canton, but there's, there's an aspect of this where it's really about our heart. It's not about the money, you guys. It's about our heart. When we follow our money, we see what we care about the most. We see where our heart is. That rings true in so much of life. I'm going to flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is God talking to the people through Moses before they take the promised land. Okay, They're going to be going into the promised land soon. They've been wandering around in the wilderness, receiving commands from God, trying to listen to him and be faithful. A lot of times they weren't. But at the, at the uh, outset, right before they're going to go into the land, um, he gives them some of the, some commands here. He says, be careful, be careful that you do, that you do not forget 
the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flock grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and, my, and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the, Lord your, it is, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So he, he talks to them about what does it look like when you get prosperity in the, in the land that you're going to? What's going to happen? He's like, make sure that you remember God. Make sure you remember the Lord your God. And essentially, it's a command to remember to remember. In the future, don't forget about God because when you get this prosperity, if you don't keep him at the very front of your mind, you'll start crediting yourself for this prosperity. You'll start trusting your wealth and trusting yourself to produce it. That's what's going to happen if you don't continually remember the Lord your God and who it is who provides, who gave you, put you in this position to begin with. And I love how it concludes there. He gives you the ability to produce wealth. So everything you have is because he gave you the ability to have it right? That's really what it comes down to. There's, there's a connection here that we see in this Deuteronomy chapter 8 between a full stomach, a full bank account, a, a big house, and pride, right? And trust in self. We start to pull back our trust and our faith in God when we feel like all of our needs are met. When he exposes need to us, we, then we realize again, oh man, we need you, we need you. And that's what the story of the Old Testament was with Israel. Is, okay, he would pull back and then they would all of a sudden realize their need for God again. They would turn to him when they felt blessed and they would start to trust the blessings rather than the blesser and they would wander away from him and then he'd have to pull them back again. That, we have a tendency to do that very same thing, to trust in our wealth. It's, it's really, it's everywhere around us. It's in every advertisement just about that you see. It's on billboards, it's on your phone. It's as you scroll through social media accounts, as you watch TV and commercial breaks. It's like money is going to answer, uh, or this product is going to bring the answer that you've been asking. Like we just are taught and programmed to trust in material things. So this is the reason why we are talking about finances, why we're talking about material resources today, and why we will talk about this into the future. It's not, it's not to get something from you as the church, right? This is not for profit. It's, it's, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say we need to trust God. We need to trust God and remind ourselves where this all comes from to begin with. That's what it's all about. It's a discipleship issue. In, in Matthew Chapter 24, let me just flip over there. Or, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus puts it this way. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. Money has a tendency to make itself God in your life, and we have to be careful about that. We have to watch out for that. So here's the reality. God does not need your money. 
He doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And he knows the power that money can have to become a God for you and for me. And so he says, give of your money. And when you give, you're demonstrating several things, and it does many things in us. It's a discipleship issue. It's a following of Jesus issue. It's not just about the money itself. It's about where our hearts are. And our hearts have the tendency to follow our money. So here's the thing. Here's, I, I've said this before. I will say it again. If you're skeptical about that, about motive, if you're skeptical, skeptical about the management of money at this church, you have my full blessing. If you have any second guesses, give someplace else, but give. You can give someplace else. I'll give you a list of churches if you want. I'll give you a list of organizations that can help you find something. I don't care if it goes here or not. I think it makes sense for it to go where you're attending and where you're being fed and all that stuff. But if you have any second guesses, I just want to give you that out because we want to make sure that there's not, there's not like a conflict of interest because I realize there's, there's that tendency for people to have that in the back of their minds. I heard it just the other day, this past week, that, oh yeah, churches are all about money. No, we're not all about money. God's not all about money. He doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And he knows that our money has the tendency to take over in that area. And so he says, give, give, be generous to take care of other people, to take care of the kingdom, uh, uh, kingdom work and all of that stuff, but he doesn't need it. He would make it happen. He can make it happen, but he wants our hearts. And so he commands us to give so that we can be giving him our whole heart. So what does giving do in us? It does several things in us as we give back to God, as we give of our resources back to him. What does it do in us? First thing it does is it, giving breaks our attachment to material things. It breaks our attachment to the things that we have in life. It breaks our attachment to money. In, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there's a story of a, of a young man they call the rich young ruler, right? We learn that he's young and that he's rich and that he's a ruler from different Gospels. So we bring it all together. He's the rich young ruler. And he approaches Jesus and he asks what he has to do to be saved. And they have this conversation. He's like, oh, I've been keeping the command since I was young and all this. And Jesus says, okay, just one thing you lack. Then sell everything you own, give it away to the poor, and come and follow me. And the gospel says he went away sad because he had many possessions. He couldn't bring himself to do that one thing. Why did Jesus command him to do that one thing if he wanted to uh, experience salvation? Because he knew what this young, rich young ruler's God was. He knew what his God was. And for us to approach Jesus and make him God in our lives, we need to get rid of the other gods that we carry with us. And he knew that, that money, that possessions was a God for him. So he says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And he knew that getting rid of those material possessions would break this rich young ruler's attachment to them. That he would be killing his God in order to be able to follow Jesus as his Lord and uh, walk with him without, without a division in his heart. Giving breaks our attachment to the things, material things in our lives. That's why God wants our whole heart, so he wants us to give. And when we give, even if it's not everything, when we give sacrificially, it begins to break that, that, that attachment to our heart. It begins to break it. Have you ever heard of this monkey trap? I don't know if this is true or not. But there's, there's this old belief that, that if you want to catch a monkey, you get, you get a jar, okay? And you attach the jar to something, you tie it uh, or chain it to something, or you bury it in the ground. And you have to make sure that the, the mouth of the jar is, is pretty thin, that, 
that like the monkey can put its hand in but can't pull it out when it has a fist. And then you put something in there that's attractive to the monkey, like fruit or nuts or something like that. And then the monkey will come up and it'll reach its hand into the jar, grab hold of the thing that it wants, and try to pull that thing out, but it can't. And then the hunter can come up with a net and get, catch the monkey because the monkey refuses to, to let go of the object inside the jar and thereby freeing itself. A lot of times that's us with material things. We are holding on to something and it's trapping us. It's, got us, it's holding us captive. The thing that we think is setting us free, the thing we think that holds promise is actually holding us captive. And if we were just to let go, man, we would experience freedom. We would experience freedom and salvation. We'd be fine. We are, we are like that. We're holding on to material things to our detriment. Something that we think is for our good ends up being for bad. And God wants to break that, that hold on us. He wants to teach us to let it go so that we can approach him with our whole hearts. That's what he wants from us. So giving breaks our attachment to material things. The second thing is that giving reminds us that God is our provider. He's the one who provides for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to read from verses 6 through 8. Paul says this, Remember, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Check this part out. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. This is really a repeating of that Malachi 3.10, that last verse, verse 8. Uh, it repeats that, that same verse that we uh, used to jump off from for our promise this morning, that, that God will bless us when we are generous, that he will take care of our need, and then we can abound in every good work. And that blessing sometimes comes in the form of physical, material blessings, and sometimes it's something totally different. It's the joy or the satisfaction of giving. It's the joy of a simpler life, Right? Uh, and we have to wrestle with that as we walk through this life, that God blesses us. And it looks different in different times, in different ways, uh, at different periods of our lives. But he promises, us to, promises to bless us and make sure that we have what we need when we are generous with our resources. It comes from him. It belongs to him. And really, we're just stewards of things that belong to him. And so when we're giving to God, we're just returning to him what's already his. And we're demonstrating to him that we know that it's already his. Giving reminds us that God is our provider. We're not providing for ourselves, right? The Deuteronomy passage said a few minutes ago, it's him who gives us the ability to create wealth in the first place. And so as we give back to him, we're remembering in our hearts that he is the one who provides it to begin with. And now this next point follows very logically from understanding that God is our provider into the fact that giving increases our dependence on God. Giving it increases our dependence on him. When we realize and recognize him as our provider, we trust him more as our provider, right? So as we understand that he's our provider, we increase our dependence upon him. First uh, Timothy chapter 6 he addresses, he actually tells Timothy how to address the people in his congregation who are rich. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. In other words, not to take their eyes off of the provider and look at his provision and say, that is what gives me hope. 
right? That is what I'm dependent on. And that's what we're doing. We do that when we trust in our wealth, when we are, are worried about the future and the next thing we do is go check our bank account statement, you know? That's us taking our eyes off of the provider and looking at the provision and saying, that's what's giving me life. That's where my hope is. That's where, that's where I know I'll be okay in the future. No, you're not okay because of his provision. You're okay because he's the provider, even if that, that number looks bad right now, then you're still okay because he's the provider. That's what it's all about. So command those who are rich not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. That's the other thing, man. The lie of this world, the lie of this generation, the lie of this country is that life that is truly life is the wealth, right? That's what, that's what brings that life. When you have enough stuff. Paul is saying here, that's not it at all. You'll take hold of life in this life and in the life to come. Life that is fully life when, you're, when you learn to be generous. When you lay up treasures for the next life, not this one. Really, the life that's worth living is not the one that ends with leaving behind all of your possessions. The life that is worth living is the one that ends with going forward to the riches in your inheritance in the next life. That's what it's all about. Giving increases our, depend, our dependence on God. It decreases our dependence on things, on our money, on our bank accounts, on our, on our material things in our lives. Money makes a good servant, but a bad master. You may have heard that quote before. It's by Francis Bacon, a British philosopher. Money makes a good servant, but a bad master. We oftentimes flip that around. We make money our master. We begin to live our lives to serve our master, which is money. Really, our master needs to be Jesus. We can use money as a servant, but not as our master. So the fourth thing that giving does in us is that giving changes our perspective. When we give, our perspective gets changed. And it really feeds right out of that First Timothy verse as well. But Jesus uses very similar uh, thoughts and terminology in Matthew chapter 6 once again, just before the verse that we saw uh, from the Sermon on the Mount before. But when we give, it helps us to take our eyes off of what's right in front of us in this life and put our eyes onto the next life, in, onto eternity. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you invest the most, that's where your heart will be. It follows. They follow one another. It's really cyclical, right? As we invest in something, our heart chases it. We invest in the things that our heart chases. And it just it ends up being this, this vicious cycle for us. Or it can be a glorious cycle where we are giving, where we're generous, we're investing in the next life with our time and our resources. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. At the end of this life, you don't get to take all that stuff that you've accumulated with you, right? We don't get to take our bank accounts with us. It stays behind. 
But we can give that up in order to, to gain something that cannot be taken from us in the next life. Ultimately, we get this example, this example of generous living. We get this example of sacrificial living from Jesus Christ, right? We, we look at his ministry, we look at what he came to do, and he modeled this very thing for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through his, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus was rich. He had everything, right? He, he, he owned the universe. He gave that up. He made himself a person. He limited him, himself. He, he, he left his position as, and status behind. He entered this world as a person, making himself poor. And he did that so that through his poverty, we might be, be able to become rich in him. That's what Jesus did for us. He demonstrated what it means to give generously to the point where he was then poor so that we could have riches. And that is in the context, by the way, in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, it's in the context of giving, where Paul's challenging. We saw, we looked at a, a verse in the following chapter. Paul talks for quite a, quite a while in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about giving. And, uh, and really, th- this is, is the example of Jesus doing this for us. And so we can follow in his example. Hebrews says that he went to the cross for the joy set before him. He went to the cross enduring its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did that for joy. And when we give, we experience joy. Similarly to what Jesus did, giving him joy. Even though it was great sacrifice, it brought great pain. It was completely self-giving. But he did it for us. When we give, we put our trust in him. We tell him he's our Lord. He's our master, not our things. We tell him he's our hope, not, his, not our stuff. And we surrender our lives more fully to him. When he came to this earth, he came for that purpose. He came to give of himself. And we're going we're gonna to reflect on that right now as we think about what he gave for us and we think about this challenge to be people who are generous and people who are giving in proportion to what we have received from God, to give a portion of that back, to make that statement to him, that we trust in him, that we remember he's our provider, that, that we, that we want to honor him, that we want to make him our Lord and our master. As we think through that, we, think, we reflect on the giving of Jesus Christ, the giving of his very life. When Jesus was with his disciples for the last time, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he distributed bread around the table. And, they, and he said, uh, when, you know, as long as you gather together, practice this in remembrance of me. And then he said, after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we have, we have the cup and the bread that represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now what this is all about, this, this act of communion, we call it communion because we're communing with each other and we're having communion with God. And when we do this, we're ref, we reflect on the gift of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We reflect on the broken body and the poured out blood of our Savior. And as we practice that, we also reflect on our hearts and where we've wandered from Him. Maybe that is in this area of finances, this area of overall trust. Are we trusting the giver or are we trusting the gifts? 
Are we trusting the provision or are we trusting the provider? And we take a moment to reflect on where our hearts have wandered. And maybe in that area, maybe something totally different. We invite him in. We invite, invite him in to, to transform our hearts, to repent, to do that thing, that turn. How have, how have we wandered? How have we left? How do we need to return to you, God? But we ask it not with a hint of sarcasm, but with a hint <laughs> completely filled, really, uh, with authenticity, saying, Jesus, reveal to me, how, how can I return to you today? Where do I need to return? What do I need to get rid of? What do I need to embrace to walk with you today? So we're just going to take a few minutes. If you've began a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to, to join in communion. If you have not made that decision, this is what you do right after that. This is that example of taking on one of the outward examples of, of belief that's inward inside of our hearts. So if you're wondering what that looks like, what does that mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What does that mean to, to walk with him in relationship? Then hold off on this and let's have a conversation. Uh, me or anyone else here serving on a team would love to have a deeper conversation with you about that. Ultimately, Jesus came to give of himself, to allow his body to be broken, his blood shed, so that we could have his riches. He traded places. He sacrificed for us. Let's spend a couple of moments reflecting. We're going to take the communion on your own time. We're going to have some, some moments of, of silent prayer and reflection, and then we'll, we'll continue on with a song, a modern hymn, Jesus Paid It All. We're continuing to reflect on the gift of Jesus Christ. So when you're ready, whether it's during this reflection period or during the song, feel free to, uh, to partake in communion at that time. I'm going to pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your gift. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you did not hold on to riches, but that you poured them out. You became poor so that we might become rich. Lord, help us to never be brought, to be drawn into lesser things, not to be satisfied with, with anything less than all of you. And we thank you that you make that available to us, Jesus. We thank you that you make relationship available to us, Thank you that you make eternity available to us. Lord, you are good. You are a generous God. Help us to follow in your footsteps. Lord, as we reflect on your, on your death and resurrection now, we reflect on your free gift of salvation now. Lord, just speak to our hearts. Draw us, in, draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray.